Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, speaks with Dr. Britt Marie Young, cytopathologist and professor emerita of the University of California, San Francisco. We'll hear their conversation on leadership and mentoring in cytopathology and the practice of cytopathology, including performing patient procedures. Now here's your host, Dr. Jang. Hello, and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak to pathologists about their pursuits and interests in and outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Chang. You can follow me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. I am so thrilled today to have as our special guest, Dr. Britt Marie Young. Dr. Young is Professor Emerita at the University of California in San Francisco an international leader in cytopathology, winner of, among many other honors, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Papanicola Society of Cytopathology, an absolute legend in cytopathology and performance of fine needle aspiration biopsy. She has taught generations of cytopathologists the optimal performance of FNA in her practice, in innumerable courses, and of course, in her video series, which is newly updated by USCAP. Welcome. Thank you. So excited to have you here on the show. It is great to be part of this. I'm so excited about being able to have a conversation with you. I'm really excited to share your story and your tips and tricks with our audience as well. So really appreciate it. And before we get started, I do want to make a nod to the fact that we are part of a lineage of cytopathology. So you trained my mentor, Dr. Claudia Jones. So I want to send my appreciation for that learning and knowledge because I absolutely love FNA. I have learned so much from Dr. Jones. I've learned things that she has no doubt learned from you. And so I really personally have benefited very much from your teaching. So thank you. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. It's been one of my real goals throughout my career to train people who will train other people who will train other people, sort of like rings on the water mm. so that this can live on because I'm going to retire for sure at some point, not yet, but at some point. Well, I know that you've made a huge impact. I've shown your videos to all my trainees. I've been excited to share with them the new videos. And as you may know, I've started making some teaching videos and lectures of my own. And so I know that we're both very, very passionate about teaching and fine needle aspiration. And I'm really excited to talk to you about that today. But just to kind of get started and set the scene, let's begin at the beginning. Where did you grow up? And did you always want to do medicine and pathology? Oh, I grew up in uh, a suburb of Stockholm where the, you think about the Karolinska Institute as being part of Stockholm, but it's actually a part of the very suburb where I grew up. And wow. the, the, the name of it is Solna, which means the town of the sun, actually. Mm. Cool. And uh, so medical school was really close to my home. I could almost walk there, but I had no inkling growing up that I was going to end up there actually. It wasn't until it was time to apply, which the European system is such that you decide where you're going to go for professional school when you're in high school. So I was all of 17 years old and <laughs> really had no clue what, what life was going to be like. But that's when I had to make the decision. And I was actually headed toward business. I grew up in a business family. My parents had a furniture store, actually several furniture stores. And I was traveling with my dad who spoke only Swedish. And I could, at the time I spoke decent French, that's all gone now. But, <laughs> but, but my English, you know, was 
lists with me. And so I would help him to negotiate for what they're going to buy for the season. And so I got a little bit into this. And I was thinking I was going to go to business school and be part of the family business. And so I, I floated this idea with my dad and he was just shocked. He said, women cannot be in charge. Wow. <laughs> wow is right. Well, have you proved him wrong, huh? <laughs> oh, yes, I did. <laughs> so anyway, so that's so business was out. And I mean, he wasn't against women having an education. And he really wanted me to go to engineering school. But I was a little miffed with him. So I decided not to do that. <laughs> I was a teenager. I was kind of rebelling. And then the next in line was medical school. And I actually had met somebody who was a physician and I was inspired by this person. He was a surgeon. So I just decided to go to medical school. So I applied and got in and, and then I did medical school. And the real decision really came much later when medical school was done. And after the program then was that you had to do a two-year rotating internship in surgery, internal medicine psychiatry and primary care, that sort of thing. And uh, so I did that. And then I was standing there and I was, what am I going to do now? I really had to decide what I was going to do with my life. And I really did not know at that time. So I talked to my friends and, and there's a very good oncology unit at uh, the Karolinska. And I had a friend who had just started training there. And it's combined medical and radiation oncology, the way it's set up. So he convinced me that I should apply because he thought that would be a good fit. So I did. And I got in. And then they put me in the breast section. You sort of rotate through the different organ sections. And, and I would go to conference every week. And there were the guys who were doing fine needle biopsy. And they would present the cases at tumor board, right? And I was just fascinated by this. And I was thinking, this is really cool because they, we would send patients drop-in service to mammography and then next step would we go to the final clinic and then the day after we had all the results and we just moved forward. So I asked if I could get a rotation as part of my oncology training. And they said yes. So I did. And about a month or two into this, it was totally clear that I have found what I was going to do in life. It was the perfect fit for me. I like the images. I am good at patterns. I'm dyslectic. I don't read very fast. <laughs> and um, I also enjoyed the handiwork. I really liked surgery too, but there were some issues with surgery that I didn't particularly like. So yeah, I got to put needles in impossible places and look <laughs> at pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've continued to enjoy that. I think that's what draws so many of us in pathology to cytopathology is I too, I love procedures. I actually really enjoyed my surgery rotation and there are aspects about it, like you say, that I didn't love. And I'll be very honest that waking up early in the morning every single day for the rest of my life was something that for me, I, I felt like I didn't want to be that person. <laughs> and so I was really delighted to find a fit in pathology where we can still work with our hands, do procedures. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we, we work with our hands in autopsy in the gross room as well. Mm -hmm. um, but there's that certain satisfaction in doing the procedure and getting a needle and a tiny lesion and getting diagnostic tissue, right? Right. And it's also very satisfying to meet patients, I think. Most of our patients, we only see once. On rare occasions, I have people who come back for various reasons, and it's always wonderful to have that. But we meet them at a very critical time in their life. They will always remember that day 
when they went to the clinic and they were scared for two things. Generally, they're scared of, right? That they're yeah. scared that it's going to hurt. Yeah. And they're scared that they're going to die. And it's really crucial how we take care of patients in, in that setting. And the older I get, the more I like bi benign biopsies. It's such a relief and to be able to deliver a good message and give people a new lease on life. Yeah. I think that's the best kind is something where you look at it and you say, you know, I love a PA. You look at it, it's uh -huh. beautiful, it's benign, and, and it's kind of a win-win. Uh, it's interesting that you say PA because that was the very first specimen I looked at when I did my rotation really? <laughs> in cytopathology. And I looked at it and I said, this is incredibly beautiful. And they did all game sustain in Stockholm. So it was that magenta, metachromatic, beautiful stroma. And it's like otherworldly. So nice. It's so impressive. It's definitely yeah. a visually appealing specialty. So you talk a little bit about that patient encounter. I do think that's one of the, the challenges that we have, right? And there's this stereotype sometimes that pathologists are bad with people, but that FNA procedure where you're meeting someone for the first time, they've never seen you before, you've never seen them before. And somehow during that short period, you have to make them feel comfortable enough to allow you to perform a procedure on them. I think that's actually hugely challenging and also very rewarding as a physician to be able to establish that kind of relationship, however brief. So do you have any tips for folks who are perhaps new or learning inside of pathology to make people feel comfortable? Well, I would take that almost to the next level because my job now is to keep people comfortable when I'm teaching somebody else who's not as experienced to actually do the procedure, which yeah. is even harder to do. Yeah. But to, to back up a little bit, I think it's really important to signal that you're not in a rush. I always teach my residents and fellows that when you do the consenting, you sit down mm -hmm. and you look people in the eye and you explain to them what's going to happen. And you ask them, what are your concerns? Uh, are you afraid that this is going to be difficult? And one thing that I say to patients is that almost everybody who comes here have concerns that it's going to be painful. And almost without exceptions, when they walk out the door, they say, that wasn't at all as bad as I thought it yeah, was. It wasn't that bad, yeah. And even if they don't quite believe you, it takes you part of the way. And I use this phrase a lot. And when they leave now, they say, you were right. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And so they, I can't get them often 100% of the way for relaxing and thinking it's not going to be so hard, but they get at least part of the way. And it also tells them that you care mm -hmm. about their experience. That's really important. And, and I really, I love that you said sitting down because that's something I always make a point to do because if you're standing over them with this clipboard, it just reinforces that hierarchy mm -hmm. of you're looming over them. And so I always do the same thing. I sit down in our little rolly chair and I have my trainees do that as well because there's all these little things to the practice of cytopathology and FNA that any one decision may not be critical, but just being in the room, being present, sitting down, positioning the patient correctly, all those little decisions are so important to getting a good sample and making everyone feel as comfortable as they, they can feel. And can you do the procedure and just kind of rush in and I guess do the biopsy? Maybe, but you can make it better. Yeah. 
And what you said about positioning the patient and yourself is, I think, is very important. And I think sometimes it's challenging when you're new because you want to look like you really know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to experiment and go this way and that way and maybe change the height of the table and stand on the other side. And so I think you can get around that by saying, I want to make sure that I will do this with an optimal position. So I might try one and then I might change a little bit so that we, before we start, I really have this the way that it's going to work the best. And that will also communicate to the patient that you care. And it makes you look more experienced, I think, rather than less. So I don't think you want to rush in and you don't want to try to pretend that you know more than you actually do. And another point that I wanted to make is when you teach, I, if I walk in at the same time as the trainee, game is over because they will attach to me because they see my gray hair and that that (laughs) I have been around for a while. So I always have the trainee go in and establish a bond with the patient before I show up so that they they have a relationship already with the patient. And I find that that is very, very helpful for the whole process. I love it. I don't want to just keep saying that I do exactly what you do, but I do actually all those same things, probably because I was trained by Claudia. But 100%, once we teach the trainees how to consent, we have them go in and consent, examine the patient, establish that relationship before I waltz in as the attending. I will say that I often have the opposite problem where when I go in there, they'll kind of look at me and sometimes they'll kind of go, how long have you been here? And how many of these have you done before? And I'm very able to honestly say I've been here forever and I've done probably thousands of these and that helps put them at ease a little bit. But um, one thing I like to say when I explain to patients, especially if it's something where I think it's going to be particularly a challenging location is the biopsy only takes a few seconds, but getting you positioned, getting you set up in the right way so that we can get an optimal biopsy, that can take a little bit longer. And that's my kind of routine stock phrase mm-hmm. to tell them. We may position you in a couple of different ways to try to get to this thing optimally. But yes, I, I agree 100%. The whole idea of not rushing is so important, especially because we have a walk-in clinic. And so we never know who's going to show up. And sometimes you end up having patients in the waiting room, four or five patients, but when you're there, you're spending time with that patient and it takes as long as it takes to get a good sample and get everyone comfortable. Yeah. So backing up a little bit, talking about how you weren't always going to be in medicine when you were younger, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I, I don't remember thinking about that very much. I, it was, it's interesting. I don't have that many memories, actually, from growing up. And I think partially because I grew up in what was called a dysfunctional environment. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons I ended up so far away, I think. I now have a very good relationship. We were lots of kids. We, we were six siblings. And, oh, uh, that is, that's a lot of Yeah, and I host a reunion every year, except the summer when I couldn't go back to oh, Sweden. Yeah. So we all get together and, and it's, it's good. But growing up was very challenging and it was more day to day, just kind of making it. Uh, so I just wanted to grow up and get out. A lot of children want to get out of wherever they are, though, right? Mm-hmm. Because you want to go and establish your own identity and right. establish your own life. Yeah. 
I mean, I was always ambitious. I wanted to do well in school. I enjoyed sports. So it wasn't that I didn't want to do things, but I just did not have a vision of what it was going to be like. I wanted to be grown up, but I didn't have a vision of what I was going to really do. I think that that is a, a common experience. When I was a kid, well, when I was five, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And I tell people I just got the spelling a little bit off. But to, to think about my current career, and I would have never imagined being able to do the things that I'm able to do now. Like back in the day when we could travel, go different places in the world, teach people about pathology. It's amazing. It is truly amazing, actually. And in that part of my career has been very rewarding, actually, to go to Africa and Peru. So initially, when you were in high school and kind of thinking about the decision to go into medicine, did you have mentors within pathology once you had identified that as your field of interest as well? Oh, definitely. I'm looking up here on my wall, actually, <laughs> two of them. Thorsten Lovhagen, who he sadly died before I think he should have. He was only, he was about my age actually that I am now when he had a heart attack and died in 2000. And he was a wonderful mentor, not only to me, but he actually ran sort of a FNA school at the Karolinska. He set up a separate room with microscopes. He had boxes with study set cases. So people <laughs> got to do biopsies in the clinic. I mean, he trained so many people, and I was so privileged to work with him for two years. He was not only a wonderful physician and really good at what he was doing, but he was such a good human being. It, it was like having a father and a mentor sort of wrapped into one. He really, really cared. It, it, it was wonderful. I think that's so important for all of us in this field is that we don't do it alone. And having those mentors helps, you know, you need someone for different kinds of advice to teach you about FNA or how to build an academic career. And part of what hopefully we can do more digitally moving forward is to try to do some of that mentoring digitally. And part of these podcasts was to share the voices of both experienced and more junior people to try to kind of offer a little bit of sense of that advice and guidance and sharing those stories, because especially with the pandemic, it's hard because we can't be at those meetings, networking, we can't have those face-to-face -face meetings, but hopefully sharing the stories will serve some of the same purpose, although you don't necessarily have that one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationship. On the other hand, though, this kind of conversation goes deeper than what I typically have in the hallway and <laughs> when I meet somebody at a conference. So we should take advantage of what we can do in this format before we move back to the other one or, or continue to do both, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think it can be a, a nice adjunct. And like you say, it allows us to have these longer conversations than, for instance, if we saw each other at the ASC meeting. So it's great. In terms of your technique and approach to FNA, we talked a little bit about some of the elements of your approach. How has your technique evolved and changed over the years? I would say it has evolved in two different ways. The biggest change, I think, is the advent of ultrasound, which makes the technique by necessity different. I mean, the concept is the same, but you have to approach it a little bit differently. And it became clear, I, I would say, when the paper started to come out about thyroid and ultrasound, and you could see how the field just shifted toward, if you don't use ultrasound, your second tier, you're, you're not going to be acknowledged to be at the top of your field. So 
I felt that we needed to move forward and we needed to incorporate ultrasound into our practice. So we did that, I think, 2007, something like that. So that has changed the procedure. I used to say that if you can palpate something, I can stick it. And it was true for a long time, but I don't attempt the really challenging cases without ultrasound anymore. Mm -hmm. So my talent in sampling really small, difficult things that sit on top of the carotid and the neck (laughs) is not as good as it used to be. but, But the ultrasound makes up for that, for sure. As far as uh, palpation guided, I've changed the way I position my non-sampling hand. The way I stabilize and palpate the lesion has has changed. If you look at my two videos, the one from almost 30 years ago and the one more recent a few years ago, you will notice that I have moved my middle finger so it now sits on top of the nodule rather than putting the the nodule between the second and third finger. And I feel like Mm. that it's almost like having ultrasound in your finger because Mm. you're connected to the nodule and it gives you better feel for exactly where you're going. So that's what I teach now. So that's probably the biggest change. As far as other technical things, I was trained on almost exclusively on GIMP sustain, air-dried GIMP sustain. And then when I came here, particularly in San Francisco, pap stain was used by Dr. Miller and Dr. Abley quite a bit. And I would say it didn't take me very long to appreciate the advantages of having both because Mm -hmm. they show such different things. So Mm -hmm. I'm a big advocate of using pap stain now. And I actually went back to my alma mater to teach a, you know, multi-headed scope thing. And they were just taken aback at all the paps that I could not believe it. But anyway, I'm not sure I convinced them, but but (laughs) that has definitely changed. Yeah. I think when you talk about ultrasound, so we we started with that, I think around maybe 2010 or 2011. And I basically started my training around the same time that we got the ultrasound machine. But having that available, it does change your approach to the lesion somewhat because you can see the imaging characteristics. And for instance, for the thyroid, which is is our most common lesion, if I see something on ultrasound that looks really worrisome and I get a sample that looks maybe more benign, I'm much more inclined to try to resample another area and, and get that correlation between the imaging findings and what I'm seeing on the slide. Do you do a lot of biopsies of non-thyroid under ultrasound? Oh, yes. We we do anything that's small and maybe tricky to get to. And the practice of medicine has changed dramatically, I would say, over the last 20 years. Clinicians are not as good at palpation anymore. It's very much image-guided. So Mm -hmm. now, and particularly patients with an established diagnosis of cancer often have surveillance with Mm PET-CT. So they send patients to us and say, oh, this patient has hystromelanoma, and we found this hotspot, and can you please sample this? Yes. Which is when you can't feel it, but in the process is that you go look at those images, see what the landmarks are, and see where to put the probe and to find the thing and then go after it. So it's opened up a whole new perspective on what we are asked to do. Yeah. And I think that if it weren't for the ultrasound, we would have to turn some of those patients away because, yeah, quite frequently, and and we always ask, is it palpable? And they always say, yes, it's palpable. And I I look at the CT and I say, that's not palpable. But I I do think it extends the reach of our needle for those patients. And like you say, we get that a lot is there's something pet positive here. 
Can you sample it? And with the ultrasound, you know, often we can. Sometimes we can't, but yeah. I mean, what we stay away from, and we have an agreement with the radiologist, is that we don't do anything in the abdomen, mm-hmm. and we don't do anything in the chest. And we were really not set up to have surveillance of the patient after the procedure for bleeding and you know, those kinds of issues. So it's not appropriate for us to do those. But this, it used to be that we were exclusively, of course, palpation guided them. But the clinicians, like you said, if you ask them, they don't really know because they haven't really tried to feel it. Mm-hmm. They looked at the image, and they know they need a biopsy, and they, that's, that they go from there. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's different. And, and the physical exam that you perform as a clinician and a physical exam or, or a, a non-pathology clinician, because we're clinicians too, right? Yeah. Um, at, it, there's a different exam that you have to perform as a pathologist if you're trying to target the lesion with a needle. Because a lot of times they'll say, oh yeah, you feel something, like maybe there's something there. But if you're going to stick a needle in something, you really need to feel confident of where it is, what it feels like, what it's next to. And, and I definitely think that our, our physical exam in that way is, I'm not going to say superior, but, but different to what they're doing what, before they send the patients to us. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you're so right about that. I've had exactly that same experience. I always tell my trainees to be a little bit skeptical if uh, the patient comes in with imaging showing something, they're like, oh, yeah, it's palpable. And they go, mm-hmm, we'll see about, about that. But yeah. we've got the ultrasound machine, so it's on, it's ready to go. And if it's not palpable, we're still ready. And like you say, we don't do abdominal lesions. Um, yeah. We still keep it relatively superficial. Our longest needles are one and a half inch. And that's basically, that's our target lesion step as well. Any advice for those who are interested in pursuing a career in cytopathology and really getting good at FNA? Well, I think, and this should come as no surprise <laughs> for those people who have heard me before, is that I think to be aware that the quality of the specimen is so crucial for success is really as they say, the secret sauce of success in cytopathology is to have a good specimen to work with. You can, if there's not much there and it's limited, you end up in the gray zone and, mm-hmm. and it's more likely that you will go into the wrong direction. And so it's, I view FNA cytopathology more to sort of like a small, very small surgical pathology kind of concept rather than a screening tool. I mean, it's true that sometimes it it becomes a bit of a screening if you can't pinpoint things down, but it should be fairly rare. And we should really try to make a real diagnosis. And so the challenge, I think, is to find uh, a place where you can truly learn about procurement, because without that, it really is an uphill battle. Our meetings are so focused on interpretation, and I think that's part of the history, but I think we need to take some of that and focus it on the procurement part. And working also with radiologists and help them to procure better samples that we can do all the things. And I think now with molecular pathology, all these wonderful new tools that I think is really a perfect marriage with these really tiny specimens because you you don't need large volume. You just need good stuff. Yes. It's amazing what we can do. And the field really is moving pretty rapidly in that direction. And I'm not even sure that surgery for cancer is going to be as prominent as it has been 
going forward. It's going to be more targeted therapies. So we need to figure out how to have good samples that we can do all the stuff with. And, and mm-hmm. I think you should also learn about, if you're going into cytopathology today, I think you should widen the scope and have another fellowship to go with it. And maybe some places will combine them so that's more about sequencing and all the ins and outs of how you manage the data and think about how you triage it so that you go after the right thing because we can't do every marker on everything, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even with the biggest samples. <laughs> yeah. Right, because it's not viable from a financial standpoint. So I think you have to like images. If you don't like images, it's probably <laughs> not, not something. And you also need to like people and to have what I would call good hands. And if you don't like to do things with your hands, that's also going to be challenging. And I'm kind of infamous when I interview for fellowships. I don't know if you know this, but I actually do a little bench thing on liver. And I don't really care if people know anything when they come in. But if I can teach them something in 10, 15 minutes, then I know I can train them. So that's sort of my little screening because no talk in the world is well, <laughs> tell me that. And it's not just for me, it's for them too, because if they come and it's not going to work, they're wasting a year in our program. So, And there's another thing you're probably screening with that is how they perform under pressure, right? Because I mean, this conversation is very informal that we're having here, but I think that to come have an interview and have to demonstrate hands-on procedure in front of you might be a little intimidating for some people. Oh, it is for everybody. I make everybody (laughs) nervous. And I think that, but that actually is also another screening tool because part of having face-to-face patient interaction is how you perform under pressure because it is a challenge to be in that situation and being able to perform under that pressure because it is a lot of pressure, rightly so, to insert a needle in another human being and being able to handle that pressure and remain calm remain collected is uh, sometimes you're the only person in the room who's not panicking and to be able to have that calm demeanor in those situations is very important as well. It is important. It's true. I mean, I try to make people as little nervous as possible. (laughs) And I acknowledge it, it is pressure and it is hard, but it's not meant to intimidate them. It's more for information. I tell them too, I don't really care how much they know, it's how we can work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like you say, if that's a situation that's going to make them uncomfortable, they don't want to be doing that for an entire year, right? Uh, so. Yeah, that's true. Well, they, the re- relationship between me and the fellow just evolves over the year. And it's very different when they graduate than when they first come in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. That's great advice is having that interest. If you don't really like procedures, maybe a career in FNA is not for you. And I think that when you talk about procurement, that's a really important piece of, as pathologists, we do a lot of education, right? And we educate people on different tumor types and the molecular, and we are the gatekeepers of so much of that knowledge. But as interventionalists ourselves, I find myself working, like you say, with a radiologist, with endocrinologist, some of whom at our institution do biopsies, 
we have a lot of conversations where if I reach out, if I start seeing a lot of clotted samples, I'll shoot them an email and say, your samples are really clotted. Let's talk about it. How can we make this better? And it's a win-win and we're all in it to take care of patients, right? And so I'm fortunate to work with a really strong multidisciplinary group where no one really gets offended. You don't want to be just doing biopsies and doing a suboptimal job, right? So if it, it were me, I would want that feedback. I think that feedback is really important for all of us, even when we're out in practice and we're attendings, we're always learning. And so I'm always looking to improve my technique as well. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your interests outside of pathology. Well, as a uh, young person, I played the piano and I didn't always practice very much. I was probably a typical student. The day of the lesson, I'll sort of wake up and say, ah, better practice a little bit. (laughs) But somehow I sort of did learn a few things along the way. So it was one of the really nice things about my childhood was music. I had a teacher that I really liked, and I was introduced to classical music. There were concerts for young people on Saturdays at three, and sort of a Santa Claus-looking guy who explained (laughs) it all. and, And it was sort of an oasis for me. And then I got to about halfway through high school and decided I didn't have time for that kind of thing, which now seems ridiculous. <laughs> and that I didn't really play for a long, long time. And when I met my, I was, what brought me to the United States was my first marriage, which didn't work out. The, the short answer to why I ended up in the United States is that I met the wrong guy. And, uh, but I got over that. And then I met the Mr. Wright. And a little bit into that relationship, I took him to Sweden to meet my family. And we went over to my parents' house and the piano was still there. And as was my habit, I'd sit down and just play a little bit, just kind of for all time's sake. And he just looked at me and he said, you play the piano and you never told me (laughs) you should be doing this. So we got back home and and, uh, we bought a piano and I started taking lessons. And that's now, oh, it's almost 30 years ago. Wow. So I've been playing really off and on and taking lessons off and on since then. And then COVID happened. Mm. And my piano teacher lost all his gigs and they sent me home because I was over 65 and high risk. So I had two months at home. Oh my. And so I said to Jeff, my teacher, I said, we could do this every week now. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm playing a lot actually and really enjoying it. It's taking up much more time than I used to. So that's a big focus actually in my life right now. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love that. Do you have a particular style of music that's your favorite? You know, we have gone Haydn, which is more classical. And right now we're doing Chopin and we're going to move into Debussy. We're kind of going all over, but it's classical music, I would say. I, jazz seems to be a very challenging black box to me. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to get to that, but we'll see. And really, I mean, I like, some of the more contemporary stuff too, but it's challenging in a different way. And there's so much to play. I like Beethoven and I love Mozart and Scarlatti. I think it's is absolutely fantastic. So there's plenty to last more than a lifetime of exploration. <laughs> Lots to keep you occupied. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. So, yeah, it's really a wonderful thing to have in life, actually. Do you have any recordings of you playing the piano that you'd be willing to share with us on air? Well, actually, if you go to that first video from almost 30 years ago, there's piano music in the background on part of it. 
hmm. where I'm running, it's sort of, I'm not talking and I'm showing what the pace is when you actually do a real biopsy and make mm-hmm. the smears. And it's me playing Eric Satie, one of the GNOPDs in the background. Fascinating. I'm going to have to go back to those videos and watch for that. Uh-huh. So it's toward the cool. end. Toward the end. Pretty cool. Like a little yeah. Easter egg in those videos. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a budget for that thing. It was filmed <laughs> in a spare bedroom in our house. And it was challenging because the cameras were not as good at the time. And we couldn't see the glass slides. You had to paint the edges of the glass oh. slides to see that have a little contrast. And we built the light table so that the light came from underneath so, you, so we didn't have so many shadows. I mean, it was quite the production. And then we didn't want to get in copyright problems, mm. right? So we needed a little music. So we said, well, we need a dead composer and, <laughs> and nobody could come after us. And it was great that you had that talent that you were able to share, although I had no idea it was you on, on uh-huh. the video. But that's, yeah. great. that's great. And we're so fortunate now we have kind of a glut of programs that allow us to take videos from our computers and phones. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier now. Back in the day, things were more challenging. There was no internet. There were no cell phones. I mean, there was... No, a totally different world. Yeah. In some ways, I think it would have been a simpler world. But I think for this year, I'm very thankful that we live in a more yeah. connected world so we can continue yeah. to do mm-hmm. our work. And um, the other thing, I've always been very active physically. And, and so I've started running in high school and have actually run pretty much since then. And now that I have more time, I, I run more than I actually ever have. And I find that it's great for your mood. It makes you feel so good. I was going to ask, actually, so being in San Francisco, San Francisco is notoriously hilly. Are there good places to run where you're not just going up the verticals or do you just run up the verticals? We have, we have a route that is a mix of the two. We have one major hill sort of about halfway in, which is sort of a challenge. And it's good. It's good to have a good hill <laughs> to work on. Uh, we start out slightly downhills. That's our warm up. And uh, but it's, so we go about six miles and it's a good workout. So it's a little bit up and down. And it goes partially through the Presidio Park, which for those who've been in San Francisco and seen the Golden Gate Bridge, that's sort of where the Golden Gate Bridge comes in to San Francisco and the Presidio Park. Wonderful. So, and the other thing I love to do is skiing. I actually met my current husband skiing. And it's our son, actually, we taught him too well because he's become <laughs> a ski patroller. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. where, where is he uh, doing that? Uh, he had, he's at Squaw Valley. And we're waiting for him to go to the next level in something else because it's not a viable career. You can't make a living at it. But mm. uh, that's what he's doing right now. Oh, fun. So, Looking back on your career, what other advice do you have for those of us who are making our way in medicine? Well, more sort of how do you get through a career? Often you get so involved and you feel like you have to do so much and you put off important things. And there can be many things that are being put off. But I see people who work such long hours, they don't have time to take care of themselves. And I think it is so important because it catches up with you and it actually doesn't help you be productive. So I say, take good care of your body. Only have one. Exercise, watch your weight. Don't pack on the pounds and think you're going to take it off later. It's really hard to do that. Pay attention to what your personal needs are and take care of yourself. It's so important for being able to perform well at work and also to have a good private life. 
to have relationship last and be rewarding. So that would be my general advice now being sort of at the other end of the career. I really appreciate you saying that because I think that especially for those of us who are earlier in our careers and looking at, if you look around, sometimes what we share is our professional successes. And I love social media. I think it's, it's fantastic. But I do think some of it is what you look around and you see as people just being so productive. They're publishing, they're writing, they're researching. And I think it's really important for people who are mentors and people who are teaching the younger generation to model the fact that it is important to take care of yourself and Mm -hmm. that it's important to have truly balance where you are a better physician if you do have a life outside of medicine and you Mm -hmm. sleep and you eat and you exercise and you do the things to take care of yourself. Because I do think in medicine, we don't always model those work-life boundaries and self-care as well as we could. I think that's very true. So thank you for bringing that up because I know that's something that I always struggle with because I am very enthusiastic and I, I love doing all these things and I often will be working on nights and weekends, not all the time, but I'm very cognizant now that if I'm sending an email to one of my residents or fellows, the unspoken message that goes out to them when I'm sending mm-hmm. them a message at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday. And I'm very intentional now about trying not to send emails at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday because I don't want to set up that expectation mm-hmm. that that's what the really good faculty should be doing. I try to model some boundaries and I've been trying to not work on the weekends as much. Mm -hmm. So, so important words. Maybe one more piece that you asked about advice. So when you're in training, I think it's a good idea to train your mind that pretty soon you are going to be the one to make the final decision and practice that. Really practice that. When you have a specimen, just pretend that you are it. The buck stops with you. And what would you tell the clinician? Even if you can't say exactly what it is, what can you tell them that's going to help them to take better care of the patient? And the stakes are pretty low on making mistakes when you're in training because you have the safety net of your teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe there's a sort of a temptation to look smarter and to not make mistakes as a resident. But I I think pretty soon, all of a sudden, you sit there and you actually have to make that decision. And if you haven't practiced really thinking through that, it's very hard in early career. And the other thing is when, when you're done with all this training, even if you do multiple fellowships, you still have a lot to learn. I'm still learning. Yeah. I still see things that I haven't seen before. It never stops. And actually, one of our senior pathologists, Linda Farrell, who was the chief of the clinical services until she became emerita like me, (laughs) always said that, you know, counting it taking about five years into practice before you really feel solid. And don't be afraid to consult. Absolutely. We all do that. I still consult with my colleagues all the time, actually. Yeah, I agree. I show things all the time. We have Cytopath Consensus Conference and we all Mm -hmm. learn so much from one another because it's like you say, there's a lot out there and a lot to keep up on, a lot of tumors, and we all have something to contribute. So I know that there's at least one other hobby that you have mentioned to me that is a little bit, was a surprise to me. Do you want to share that with our listeners? Oh, yes. So this is actually not something I do now. (laughs) (laughs) This is something I did in my sort of 
crazy youth. So I was in medical school, I think first, maybe second year of medical school, and I had a boyfriend, and he was into skydiving. And if you wanted to hang out with him on the weekend, particularly, you would go to this godforsaken place two hours away where there were big fields and no power lines, and he would skydive. And I looked at that and I said, there are two options here. You can sit on the ground and watch other people have fun, or you can participate. (laughs) So I decided to go through the training and do skydiving. And to my surprise, it was the most exciting thing I have ever done. The second you land on the ground, the only thought in your head is, oh, my God, I got to do this again. I need to get up there. (laughs) It's very, very, very thrilling. And so I did it for a little over a year. There's a break in the winter. It's too cold there to go skydiving in the yeah. winter. But so I got 40 jumps in, which is oh quite my a bit, goodness, quite That's a bit. A lot. And you sort of start with only a couple of seconds before the parachute is triggered. But the real fun is the free fall before <laughs> you, you pull the cord and the parachute. See, the parachute part is just transportation to the ground. <laughs> the fun part is the free fall. A very pragmatic approach to it. Just the transportation to the, into the ground. That's right. So that you don't die on the way down. <laughs> So anyway, so I got up to 20 seconds of free fall, which is a long time when you're falling through the air. So anyway, but that's over. I'm not doing that anymore. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That is so many jumps. So if you were free falling, oh, I'm I'm not going to attempt to do the math, but if you were free falling for 20 seconds, you have to start from a pretty high up place, right? Yes. Yeah. So we had these fairly small planes of Cessna's. And you don't need a door because you're just going to jump out, right? <laughs> so the door was taken off, and, and the, the people who were at the beginning would get out first because you, the airplane goes up, right, mm-hmm. higher and higher altitude. So the more advanced you were, the later in the group you would actually go up. So it's true. The, the longer free fall, the higher you have to start. So for your first time doing it, presumably you've gotten all the training. Did you have a sense when you were at that opening where the door would have been of, was there even a moment of maybe I shouldn't jump out of this airplane? I'm not sure. I think I was in denial. They would have been too (laughs) challenging to really think that through. I I might not have done it if I had allowed that to happen. There's a certain peer pressure. You're training in the group and everybody excited and they really want to do this. And so you just kind of march forward. It's a little bit like medical school. You want to cut somebody's belly up and take their (laughs) appendix out. Well, you kind of do it, right? Because it's expected. It's it's a little bit like that. So. I mean, I, I would be lying if I said I hadn't had some anxiety or was nervous about it, but it was mostly, it was just really fun, actually. Wow. I like that statement of you can either sit there and watch other people have fun, or uh-huh. you can jump in and just like a career in medicine, I don't think any of us really knew what we were in for when we started the journey, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But good advice to jump in and not just let other people have all the fun. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so very much to Dr. Jung for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for all you've done to teach and continually improve the practice of fine needle aspiration. To hear more from Dr. Jung, you can follow her on Twitter at LJUNGMD. 
and view her teaching videos online, and I'll include links in the episode notes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.